0: Don't adopt those leading-edge or bleeding-edge technologies unless the problem you're solving absolutely requires it. And that's often not the case. Pick the boring technologies that are industry-leading, battle-tested.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. Today, I have Brian Childress. I'm very excited to uh, have you on my show. Thank you for being here, Brian.
0: Yeah, it's great to be here. Really excited.
1: Let me do a little intro, right? So Brian is a seasoned technologist advisor, expert software engineering, cloud computing, and cybersecurity expert. Uh, he is a fractional CTO uh, and uh, a family man, father, right? Father and, and husband, I understand. Uh, that's big about uh, balancing work and life and all that wonderful stuff. And you've got a lot of expertise in assisting CTOs and CC, uh, CEOs in navigating the tech, tech landscape, uh, which makes you extremely Invaluable, um, I'm sure.
0: Uh, yeah, I like to think so. I uh, try and have a big impact for the folks I get to work with.
1: I bet, Brian. Tell me. Uh, let's start with your journey, right? How did you get to this point where you're now advising startups? You're a advisor. You're a mentor to 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 folks in the incubator, uh, and you're also a fractional CTO, going into companies that you don't work for, right? Temporarily. To uh, how quickly you make an impact. What what led you to this uh, to this point of your career?
0: Yeah. uh, My career path was not a straight or smooth one by any means. Um, Technology is really my second career. Um, I actually went in undergrad, went into a a field that's so far removed from software or or technology. It's almost funny. Um, But over the years, I've worked really, really hard to kind of put myself in really good kind of challenging positions. I've continued to kind of push myself both in you know, regular day-to-day work and outside. So I've done a lot of moonlighting and freelancing over my tech career. And I think through that has really allowed me to get into you know, some really unique and exciting opportunities. And so now I'm able to work with a number of different clients as a fractional CTO. Uh, I tend to work across industries. So you know I'm working with folks in education and finance and uh, healthcare and really, for me, uh, you know, I I love technology. It it was the thing that I had been searching for for a long time, and so now I have an opportunity to to really help others and continue to grow their their technology.
1: Brian, what was that first career you uh, you meant you alluded to?
0: So I was an outdoor guide, uh, rock climbing, white water yeah. rafting, skiing, that sort of thing. Uh, I really you know enjoyed it. It's fantastic, tons of fun. Got to go on some great adventures. Um, but But. it, it wasn't for me necessarily. It wasn't kind of scratching that, uh, itch that I was, I had, you know, I was really looking for something that was intellectually really challenging, um, a place where I felt like I had to constantly be learning and kind of growing in my skills. Um, you know, there were certainly opportunities, but not to the degree that we have in technology
1: got it got it what is um when you go into a a company i'm sure you've been exposed to quite a few like what are the biggest challenges non-technical founders uh faced in today's tech landscape where things are evolving extremely quickly especially with ai growing rapidly um, what are you seeing for non-tech founders
0: one of the biggest challenges that i see is that non-technical founders don't know what they don't know and so there's a tendency to see technology as almost magic and so because they don't feel comfortable or confident in understanding kind of what's going on they relinquish a lot of control over to the person that they feel like holds that magic that technical person and unfortunately that technical person oftentimes isn't necessarily qualified or have the best interests interests of the business in mind they're just excited for an opportunity to play with new technology and so what often happens is that non-technical founders just relinquish their entire business really over to someone and you know it may or may not kind of play out very well in the end. And it's uh, pretty unfortunate to see a lot of times.
1: What what advice would you give to those folks, uh, especially the non-technical one?
0: Really look for a strong technical partner, be slow to bring them on, and be slow to kind of give a lot of your business, your intellectual property, equity, you know, oftentimes we see folks that are saying, oh, well, let me give you 20 or 30 percent of my business to come on as my technical co-founder because you're the one that can, you know, bring that magic in and solve this problem. And oftentimes it's a unfortunately a bad move. Uh, and so, you know, I really encourage folks to instead of handing over equity Look for someone that they can partner with, that they can pay cash to, to be able to work with, to help them to build that um, platform and really, you know, maybe even taking a step back and trying to understand what is it that they're trying to build? What are they trying? You know, what's the problem they're trying to solve for so that they don't just jump right into, oh my solution needs an app, so I need to go find somebody who will build an app and I'm willing to spend tons of money and tons of time. But we haven't actually validated that idea. Uh, We haven't actually confirmed that this is the thing that the market wants and is willing to pay for. Um, And so really just kind of holding back on that excitement to just start building with technology.
1: How about on the opposite end, Brian? So you've got a, uh, a technical... Founder, uh, they're they're kind of more in the weeds. They got their own challenges, right? They're they're they've grown up as software engineers, and here they are now, a founder of a company. What advice would you give to them?
0: Start simple, extremely simple. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I see from a technical standpoint is that, especially for folks that are maybe kind of mid-career, they're so excited about all the new technologies out there and all the exciting architectures, and they know that. From day one, the platform that they are building is just going to be huge, right? As soon as it makes it onto the first page of Product Hunt or onto Reddit, it's just, there's going to be a huge influx. And so they start building for that scale because now they're in charge. It's their opportunity to build the things the way that they think they should be built. And so they build super complex, you know, really hard to understand, really hard to hire for, you know, software solutions with technologies and it, it doesn't work out that well, unfortunately. And so I always encourage folks to just start simple, uh, just to prove that we're solving the right problem. And then, you know, we can add scaling uh, capabilities down the road, but it's rare that any of us are going to build anything that's going to need extreme scaling capabilities right out of the gate. It's extremely rare.
1: I talked to a, a founder of a company uh, about three years ago. They wanted me to invest. I, I asked a couple quick questions, and I knew they just weren't the right people. He said his 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 site was going to be so extensive, such a high scale that you know he couldn't go with Amazon's. Uh, Uh, servers right and i said i can't i can't invest i can't invest in a a guy that thinks that way right it just was it was a little insane um question for you 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 use a very pragmatic approach to solving you know software development projects you told me during our conversation that 70 percent of projects fail uh why is that what what do you see when you go and you're seeing a failed project what what happened along the way
0: Yeah, depending on the research that you look at, it's anywhere from 50 to 80, 85% of software projects fail. So I I typically say 70% uh, will never ever see the light of day. Um, We'll spend millions of dollars, you know, six months or 18 months building something uh, just to get thrown away. And a lot of times there's a few different things that tend to happen. One, it's overly complex. There's just too many moving parts, there's too many technologies, and it becomes either too burdensome to try and build upon or maintain. Uh, it becomes incredibly difficult to hire somebody who is comfortable and capable of coming in and contributing to the code base quickly and effectively because it's just too much complexity. And another reason that I see a lot of projects fail is it's, it's just solving the wrong problem. We're We went after something, we went with, uh, you know, very little information. We made a lot of assumptions early on and we built the thing, uh, under the guise of, well, if we build it, then our customers will come. And oftentimes that's not the case, right? We need to build something that our customers actually want, that they're willing to pay for. And so a lot of times that's why we see a lot of, uh, technology projects fail
1: Brian, um. You know, it just reminded me I've, I've had also I've heard startups say, hey, we're choosing uh, Haskell or Erlang or Lisp or some crazy functional language that they've chosen as their go to to uh, uh, programming language. My concern is, first of all, that's awesome. But how are you going to find engineers? How are you going to find enough engineers that know those very rare technologies to scale? And, and it's crazy because they're like, wow, I never thought of that how do you not think of that? You know, uh, how did you not even think about that when you chose your programming language? Just because you like Erlang or whatever Haskell doesn't mean that's that's what you should go with.
0: Yeah, I've seen quite a few projects either have to be completely refactored because they chose a language that they just couldn't hire anybody for. They could not find people. uh, The people that they could find either weren't interested in building, you know, in that particular industry or solving that particular problem. And they were just, incredibly expensive to hire. And, you know, that's that's a huge cost for a business to say, we built something that we can no longer support on our own. So we have to go back to the drawing board and rebuild this thing with the technologies that really we should have chosen to begin with. Um, so I always encourage folks to don't adopt those leading edge or bleeding edge technologies unless you're, the problem you're solving absolutely requires it. And, and that's often not the case. Pick the boring technologies that are industry-leading, battle-tested. I can hire for people. There's plenty of you know, information on Google or Stack Overflow that can get me out of a bind that I can figure out how to use those technologies to solve certain problems. And then if I can't get to there to the point I need to be, then consider bringing in some of those other kind of you know, uh, more unique tech uh, solutions.
1: People um, miss miss a very important word of the the word bleeding edge It's, it's the part bleeding right that that came from somewhere so right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't want to spend too much time bleeding uh, on working on this bleeding edge technology, which I'm sure that's where the phrase came from. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, your kind of pragmatic approach. You you know, you talk about clean, simple architecture. You talk about, uh, scalability tell me a little bit about, you, you know, your, your mindset around those, those concepts.
0: Simplicity is, I think, paramount for a successful software project, right? The more years of experience that I gain in my career, the more important I think it is to just go back to the foundational pieces, back to simplicity because you know I'm no longer excited about playing around with new technologies or how you know solving you know certain algorithm problems with the least amount of code and the shortest amount of you know uh, functions I'm interested in something that is maintainable you know by myself in 6 months or by a new team member or a new group coming into the organization that's my goal and so I really, you know, really, really focus on is this something that we can continue to maintain? Um, and that leads kind of right into the ideas that um, around scalability that I share a lot. Scalability is a term that we hear thrown around oftentimes. You know, from a technology standpoint, we have certain definitions or assumptions around scalability. On the business side, we have we use the same word, but we have different definitions. Um, and so for scalability or, or scaling, um, I typically break it down into three different categories. Uh, the first is scaling to add or be able to support more users, right? And oftentimes that's kind of what we think about, right? And you know, by and large, that means just being able to you know, have bigger servers, more servers that are you know, in strategic geographic locations that we can support users with you know, low downtime and uh, low latency, that sort of stuff. So that one feels like fairly solvable, right? There's a lot of solutions, a lot of examples out there. Uh, the other way that I think about scalability, though, is around being able to add more developers to a project. What does it mean to have an entire new team contributing to the same code base and do it in a way that they're not stepping on each other's toes, that they're not you know, coming up with their own ways to solve certain problems, right? It's like the guardrails are there, the patterns are in place that allows somebody to just come in and add the new business logic. They're not coming up with new things. Um, and oftentimes that's where I see a lot of challenges within development teams is, you know, you have your way of coding something and I have my way of coding something and you can almost traverse the code base and see like where my code stopped and yours started. And that can be very challenging to, um, to grow as a team. Um, and then the third area of scalability that I think about is our ability to add more features to the platform. And it's kind of similar uh, in you know how is the code structured, how modular is it? what's the documentation look like, uh, what is onboarding look like? All of those things kind of come into play when I think about scalability. And so really, you know, I think a lot of times we make assumptions of, Scalability means I need you know tons of servers spread all around the world and super low latency and that's oftentimes not what a business needs it's the other two areas that we we need to focus on a bit more in my opinion
1: and what were they again Brian
0: so adding features uh, adding users uh, and then adding developers to Right. The, uh,
1: Speaking of simplicity, what is we talked a little bit about programming languages? What is one that one or two that you 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 highly recommend to, to companies getting off the ground, easy to implement, easy to scale, uh, simple, you know, a lot of information out there about it?
0: Yeah, I, I think the two most popular ones, especially if we're looking at the kind of the standard crud SAS type application, which is what many of us are building, right? So a JavaScript stack, right, Node and Express or a couple other flavors. React, Uh, And then Python. Those are the two that I see most predominantly. Choose one of the frameworks with very standard, you know, again, industry adopted libraries. And if you're going to use a framework, find one that's really well supported, that has all the features that you're looking for. Um, I mean, we saw it, you know, what, 10 years ago or maybe more, Ruby on Rails. That was the thing that everyone adopted and went for. You know, And there's the, the, the big arguments of, well, Ruby doesn't scale and it has terrible performance. And it's like, maybe, right, if you're trying to bench test it against Rust or something else. But do you really need that level of performance for the 2,000 users that you're supporting yeah. right now? Exactly. Is it that important to be able to you know, handle 20,000 concurrent connections at once. Like most of the time, a lot of us just, we're never in that scenario. So I can hire for so, jobs. And, and for when
1: them. we get there, it's a great problem to, to have, right? Exactly, I mean, what right. a great opportunity. Oh my God, we didn't think we'd scale at this level. We need to you know, refactor and, and move to a, a more scalable language. Wonderful. Yep. That's amazing. Exactly. Let's throw some money at it. What's Brian, what's your least favorite programming language? When you walk into a company that's hired you, you're like, oh no, this is your 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 uh, code base. What did I get myself into?
0: Uh, any code base that I can't go in and kind of easily traverse and follow it, right? There's all sorts of weird folder structures and naming conventions and those sorts of things. Um, a specific language or framework. Um, and it, it may just be, you know, some, you know, battle scars from prior roles, you know, in, anything in kind of the Microsoft stack. Um, you know, I ha, I have some. You're not a yeah, C Sharp fan, huh? Yeah, not not really. Um, you know, I could see a lot of benefit and, and that sort of thing, but um, just never been one that I gravitated towards.
1: Even with the new .NET Core uh, updates and all that?
0: I mean, that does make it pretty enticing. It definitely does. And you <laughs> are, at least I'm seeing a lot of, you know, more consideration in that way, because yep. it's a lot easier for us to to run some of those applications without the huge server bills that we had, you know, eight or 10 years ago.
1: Brian, um, some of these companies that you go into, uh, smaller companies or ones that don't have a, a huge long, long-term roadmap, I'm sure are hiring freelancers, consultants, agencies, offshore people. Um, what are some things that what, what are some factors businesses should think about, leaders should think about before going that direction?
0: Really trying to understand where do they think their business will be. Uh, so the bigger, more established businesses, that roadmap and you know where we're looking strategically is a bit longer of a horizon. For the smaller startups, that horizon just shrinks a little bit. So we're looking at three to six months out. And what is it that we need to be able to support on the business side from a technology standpoint and really understanding how does technology play a role in things. And another kind of area that I see software projects fail is because we allow the technology to drive the business instead of supporting the business through whatever technology Mm -hmm. we bring in, right? Technology is giving us some automation, some consistency, higher quality, speed, those types of things. But when we allow the technology to make those decisions, it can be challenging. Um, you know, so some of the platforms, the low-code and no-code solutions can do a lot for organizations as they're in those early phases. And they're still trying to figure things out. They're still trying to make sure that they're solving the right problem.
1: Can you uh, shed some light on some of the risks associated with uh, hiring offshore developers? and how do you mitigate those some of those risks I think one of
0: the biggest risks that I see play out all too often is that again we we hand off a lot of control to someone else that person that can you know do the technology side and if that person is whether they're onshore or offshore kind of doesn't matter as much but we see it much more frequently when we're hiring somebody that we we don't see very often, right? They're not in you know, near us, um, and so really, what I encourage folks to do is maintain all of that control, right? You're you are the one setting up your GitHub organization, and you're granting access to that individual or that company to help develop software on your behalf. The same with hosting, right? You're the one that's setting up DigitalOcean or AWS. Uh, and then you're granting access when we just kind of say, OK, you know, dear development agency or dear freelancer, start building software for me. And it's all on their platform and they're in complete control. Then if anything goes awry or you start to get close to production and then that that development agency could kind of hold you hostage and say, yeah. yeah. If you want to continue development or you want to get this out into production, it's gonna be another $100,000 and you're stuck, right? You don't have the thing that you can then take somewhere else.
1: Makes sense. Um, For founders, is it more critical to spend time building the idea or validating it first?
0: In my opinion, validation is key. It's easy for us to build something, but we need to know what to build first.
1: Okay, and how do you go about that? How, how How do you approach this balance?
0: The first thing that I love to do is, you know, for a founder to really have some background and, you know, experience in that industry or with that particular problem that they're solving for and to go out and talk to people, go out to talk to their potential customers, talk to and understand competitors in the space, spend time to understand what their challenges are, what any deficiencies are. And then begin to start to add on additional technology, I guess, to um, see if the way that you're approaching that problem is correct, right? Uh, So after we've started to talk with folks and getting an idea of what we want to build, the next thing that I encourage folks to do is potentially just go and hire a designer that can put together like a clickable prototype, right? Figma is fantastic for this. Right. It's a fairly low cost way to put something together that is a visual that folks can start to interact with to say, yes, that is the thing that I want to use to solve my particular problem. And I'm willing to pay you money for it. Uh, And then from there, you can start to layer on some of the low code or no code type solutions um, before you get to custom software development. And I think a lot of us, especially in the technology side, we want to jump right into building something And for me, I like to put that as like one of the very last steps in the process.
1: Got it. Um, There's no technology talk without talking about AI, right? How do you envision AI changing the startup landscape in the next three to five years?
0: Uh, I think it's going to shift just incredibly, probably like nothing that you or I have seen in our careers up until this point, right? A lot of folks are comparing it to the advent of the internet or when mobile became readily available to us, right? How much that changed the way that we live and work every day. Uh, And for startups, I think it's going to be huge. We're going to see a lot more startups kind of pop up, Really quickly, and I think we're going to see more niche startups, so very small micro SaaS type applications Mm -hmm. are going to pop up and be readily available that we can start iterating on and start getting out in front of customers so much more quickly. And I think AI is just going to be one of the huge uh, multipliers for that. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, um, ebbs and flows in uh, startups because, you know, the, the speed at which AI is evolving for us, a, a startup that's working on a product right now can be completely uh, written off next week, because AI, or, or you know, some other plug-in has now brought that same capability uh, to the market. So I think we're going to see a, a lot of oscillation, but I'm expecting to see quite a few more smaller, focused uh, SaaS products coming out.
1: I'm already seeing it uh, before what companies were doing is they were trying to solve so many problems mm-hmm. at once, right? So st- they had no focus. Then they started focusing on one issue and now they're getting even tighter. You talked about micro niche. That's, that's what I'm seeing. And I kind of like it. I think it's the right direction, right? Cause we all have very specific problems we're trying to solve. And if that t- technology tackles exactly that mm-hmm. we're set. Right. We're set. That's exactly what we want in the future. I can then go get another micro niche SaaS product to solve another problem that's uh, emerged. Right. Um, and I think I think what what's what's next is is orchestration, AI orchestration tools, technologies. Right. Because there's so many different uh ai products eventually and they don't do all the same things so you're eventually you're going to have to have something orchestrating all of those different technologies and products and platforms would you agree
0: yeah i would definitely agree that glue in between everything that we're using right
1: yep nice um you know being part of you said tech stars
0: right yeah i've been a mentor with tech stars for uh Nice. Yeah, a little over a year now what
1: are what are what are some of the the companies you advise or you've seen come through these incubators uh what are the common traits in some of these successful startups versus the ones that die eventually or sometimes very rapidly uh,
0: the most successful ones that i've had an opportunity to work with really focused on solving a true problem in the market they got in mm-hmm. front of customers they you know, potentially were talking with them or showing them the product that they were building well before it was kind of ready for showtime, re- well before it was ready for production, just to confirm that we are building the thing that our our ideal customers are willing to pay for, that they're excited about. And, you know, one thing that I really like to see is when Uh, these startups start working with often referred to as like design partners, and they start to really engage Mm -hmm. and get that feedback and get those usage patterns early, early, early in the development process. And I've seen that really evolve the way the, the product is kind of shaped and the way that development is thought about because they're getting that feedback from that customer so early on.
1: Brian, I'm, um. Let's say a company has gotten past that seed round. Now they they've raised their Series A, Uh, or or whatever. Right? When is the right time to to build your actual permanent team versus hiring consultants? When is the right? When do you determine was the right time to start building your actual founding team?
0: For some organizations, there may not ever come that time, right? They may be able to work with a series of consultants and development agencies. I think when the, the challenges that are faced between understanding and seeing the iteration in the business and how customers are interacting with the product and how technology plays a role in that, when that becomes so difficult. Um, that collaboration feels very disconnected. I think it's at that point there may Mm. need to be, you know, let's start bringing folks in in in-house. What I see a lot happening is that They'll continue to work with a development agency or a freelancer for a while, and they'll start to bring in one person. And that one person is the lead on the business side that then starts to kind of mm-hmm. be that interaction model. And they'll start to build up that team slowly over time. So instead of, you know, just kind of cutting it off at once and be like, OK, now it's our our whole team. We kind of evolve over time. I've seen that be the most successful and I've been a part of organizations where that original team, uh, that built the very first version of the product is still part of the ecosystem. They're still doing development work, even though there's a, an internal team of a hundred plus engineers, they still have that original team. So all of that knowledge, all of that expertise is not lost. It's still available to the business.
1: How about on the flip side? You've got a, uh, a decent sized company, 50, 60 engineers already, and they've got a non, let's say they, they want to experiment with a new product. Is that the right time to potentially, uh, you know, bring in some consultants to, to prototype and to play around and build an MVP for a, a, a new feature, a new product you have in mind? Is that a good use case? When is it a good time to flip that? You already have your engineering team. Now you want to bring in a a, a advisor, you know, consultants.
0: Really, I would want to look at what are the capabilities of my internal team? Do we have expertise in AI or machine learning uh, or big data? Do we have that expertise internally? If we do, potentially we can carve off some amount of resources to focus on a new product or initiative. If we don't have it internally, then definitely it's at that point. I would encourage folks to go out and find that expert, the, the subject matter experts that can come in and help us to make sure that we're building the this new thing, exploring this new idea in the right way. Because you know, I, I've definitely seen it go bad where the internal team says, "No, you know, I, we're really good at, at data. I think we can learn machine learning." And, you know, maybe the business is interested in investing, you know, six months to train folks and allow them to kind of play around and learn it on their own, which is always valuable for engineers to continue learning. Uh, Or is it more valuable to bring in the experts that are going to set a good foundation that we can build this next product on and then collaborate with our existing team to be able to bring them up to speed? But they didn't have to make all those costly decisions early on, uh, leave that to the experts.
1: Nice. I like it. Um, Brian, on the flip side, we talked about uh, when you recognize a a startup that's going to be successful, have you ever seen a startup where you're like, damn, they're doomed to fail? Um, these are the concerns I have. This is the reason I would bet on them to unfortunately not make it. What have you seen that to be true? When have you seen that to be true?
0: I could probably say every time I've seen a startup fail and I kind of knew that it was happening uh, was when the technology was the biggest conversation point. When everything revolved around what Mm -hmm. is the technology? What is the language we're going to choose? What is the framework? What is the architecture? If everything... Uh, every conversation revolved around that and it never focused back on, is this what we need to be building? Is this serving our customers? Is this driving back towards business value? Almost every time I can think of an example where the, the company ultimately failed because the technology drove the decisions.
1: Versus the business using technology as a tool, as a resource to, 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 to make it more successful, faster, more efficient, so on and so forth. 100%. That's great. Brian, what are you up to these days? What are great projects, exciting projects you're working on?
0: Oh, man, I I have quite a few projects going on. Uh, I've got one um, that's really picking up steam in the cybersecurity space. I have another uh, really exciting uh, marketplace offering that I think we'll see come to uh, the market in a big way over the next probably year, 18 months. Um, and then I've got another uh, healthcare startup that's combining both hardware and software machine learning to really make uh, strides in both athletic performance and um, helping with uh, certain populations, like the elderly population, for example. Nice. Uh, so quite a few really exciting projects uh, that keep me keep me very busy for sure.
1: I'm uh, I'm involved in some age tech uh, um, startups as well, Brian. I, I I like investing in that in that okay. arena because it's a it's a booming, potential booming uh, area. And and I heard only three percent of VC money goes towards age tech.
0: No kidding! Wow,
1: massive massive gap. I mean, think about it. Think about our population and how how rapidly it's aging, especially in countries like China. Right. Yet no one's no one's tackling it. You know, at the scale that they should be. Brian, how do people find you? Let's say they, they want your advice. They want to hire you as a fractional CTO. Where do they find you?
0: LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me. So Brian Dash, children's on there. Sorry. I'm pretty active. I encourage anyone to kind of reach out, connect, send me a DM. Uh, happy to chat.
1: Amazing. And you've added so much value. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure there's a lot of key takeaways Uh, from, from your insights today. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Brian. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also help others discover the podcast. Better leaders mean better better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.